do you go along to the sw- uh, swearing in today, the signing? I did. I did go along there in Government House. It was. Uh, I didn't go to the one in 2020 because I. Well, did I? I can't remember. But back in 2017 was the first one, and you know the novelty wears off pretty quickly. It's just a bunch of people reading a, a bunch of words, but it does have obvious significance here. That was News Talk ZB political editor Jason Walls, who said he can take or leave that ceremonial stuff that goes with the swearing in of our governments, as happened last Monday. But as he said there, this is a new government promising a new direction, and it's also delivered us a new leader. Or has it? Prime Minister Chris Hipkins is now no longer incoming Prime Minister, but just Prime Minister. You just called him Chris Hipkins. Oh, my goodness. It's going to happen all the time, because Chris (laughs) and Chris, that's what happens. All right, so, so they're in. What happens now? Just a slip-up there from Jason Walls and no biggie. And even maybe no surprise given how long the media went on about Chris versus Chris during the election campaign. And the swearing-in is usually all about people reading stuff off a script, as Jason Walls said there. But on Monday, New Zealand First Leader Winston Peters went off script on the news media, guaranteeing himself a spot at the top of the bulletins that night. A new government was sworn in today, but the old Winston Peters turned up, accusing the outgoing government of bribing the media, and he issued an indirect order to state broadcasters to stop using te reo Māori. That was how News Hub at Six began last Monday, and then there was this about rolling back Tareo from Mr Peters. How quickly do you expect government departments and government agencies to, to act in well, we'll removing Tareo Māori? Well, we'll see the speed at which TVNZ and RNZ, which are taxpayer-owned, understand this new message. We'll see the, whether these people, with the media and journalists, are they independent? Are they independent? Well, that's not fascinating. I've never seen the evidence of that the last three years. Now, to some, that nudge was a veiled instruction to state-owned RNZ and TVNZ, something that a cabinet minister is really not supposed to do. And when pushed on that notion of independence, which is protected by law, well, then came Winston Peters' wider claims that the news media have been corrupted by the $55 million over the past three years doled out by the Public Interest Journalism Fund, which was characterised by News Hub's political editor, Jenna Lynch, this way outlandishly and incorrectly claiming the government had, quote, bribed the media through the Public Interest Journalism Fund. You can't defend $55 million of bribery. Repeating for effect. No, 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 you cannot defend $55 million of bribery. And that set off a chain of events and reactions that kept Mr Peter's claims in the headlines for two more days and even sparked the resignation of a former TVNZ executive from the board of New Zealand On Air after he called Winston Peters a thug in response. Now, during the election campaign, Winston Peters pledged to sort out TVNZ in a cranky pre-election TVNZ interview in which he hinted at taking the broadcasting portfolio himself to get that done. And at that point, New Zealand First was also running an online petition calling for a Royal Commission of Inquiry into media manipulation and bias. And just after that TV interview, that was inserted into New Zealand First's election manifesto, though it didn't materialise in the actual government coalition agreement, so presumably it wasn't in the end a bottom line. But while Mr Peter's antipathy towards the news media was expected to emerge at some point once he was in government, the Parliamentary Press Gallery really didn't expect it to emerge within one hour of day one. And News Hub's Jenna Lynch reckoned it was conduct unbecoming of a Deputy Prime Minister on News Hub at six that night. Credit may have been okay for Winston Peters to have a lash at media on the election campaign, but this is something different. He is the Deputy Prime Minister, and this is about democracy. It is also unbecoming of a Deputy Prime Minister to falsely accuse the media of taking bribes from a government. And you can bet your bottom dollar that this particular Deputy Prime Minister and 
serial litigant Winston Peters would at least threaten to haul someone through the courts if the same baseless accusation was levelled at him. Jenna Lynch and other journalists also pointed out that what Mr Peters claimed would actually be breaking the laws governing the two state-owned broadcasters and would also be in breach of broadcasting standards overseen by the Broadcasting Standards Authority, which is also backed up by the law, and the broadcaster's own editorial principles. Hayden Donnell ran through how all that unfolded last Wednesday on Midweek Media Watch, our weekly catch-up with Knights here on RNZ National. And while he was at it, he also pointed out that it wasn't that long ago that National Party politicians, who are now also in power, were also raising questions about the Public Interest Journalism Fund's capacity to corrupt the news in the government's favour. And among them was our newly minted Minister of Broadcasting. So the question was, if a minister or the prime minister threatened to actually pull your public interest journalism funding, would you run the story, is the question. 100%. The amount of funding we gets around a drinks. <laughs> Thanks for that question. Well, that was TVNZ's chief executive, Kevin Kenrick, telling the National Party's Melissa Lee back in 2021 there was no chance that the small sums on offer from the Public Interest Journalism Fund would skew TVNZ's political coverage. You can hear all that and much more in this week's Midweek Media Watch if you missed it last Wednesday. It's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it for free wherever you get your podcasts. Now, this week, Mr Peters, when pressed, didn't offer a single example of the corrupted conduct or journalism that he'd alleged, and neither did most of those who reckoned he might have a point. And after the first Cabinet meeting on Tuesday, which media were invited to attend as a photo opportunity, Mr Peters doubled down to reporters. Before you ask one more question, tell the public what you signed up to to get the money. This called transparency. OK. Appropriate, Mr Luxon. Thank you. On News Talk ZB, political editor Jason Walls told the host Heather Duplessis Allen this. He's, he's appealing to the conspiracy theorists to believe that the money, the 55 million, was used to buy off the media. Yeah, it's, it's just utter right. garbage. It's just, it doesn't make any sense. But maybe in the spirit of contrarian talkback, Heather Duplessis Allen decided that the guy who was peddling what she'd just called conspiracy nonsense also had a point about biased reporting. It's just a function of living in Wellington. It's full of public servants and people who all think the same. They all agree furiously with each other over glasses of wine at post-work functions. They're all from the same political class. They all went to university. They mostly all came from middle-class families. Basically, do not spend enough time in the South Island and the Upper North Island, which is basically the rest of the real world. T-minus 10 years, that was me, right? I was at those functions. I was living in Wellington. Basically, honestly, I was thinking exactly the same as they do. So apparently all journalists need to do is leave Wellington to cure themselves of wokeness and public service influence. But while Winston Peters didn't make it explicit when he referred darkly to what the Public Interest Journalism Fund recipients had to sign up to, it was nothing to do with that. It was this. That money came with strings attached, right? The most contentious of those strings is taking the money required the media outlet to endorse a particular view of the treaty. Now, that is highly problematic because there isn't just one particular view of the treaty. There are multiple views of the treaty, and so it's wrong to force any media outlet to endorse just one view. That looks bad. Frankly, it is being influenced in editorial content. But the terms of the Public Interest Journalism Fund didn't force the media to endorse a version of the treaty, as Heather Duplessis-Allen said there. Guidelines issued in advance did say the fund must actively promote the principles of partnership, participation and active protection under Te Tiriti o Waitangi. Now what Heather Duplessis-Allen's own company, NZME, actually signed up to 
was spelled out a little better in an article by ZB stablemates at the Herald last Tuesday. Reporter Raphael Franks explained that applicants to the fund were asked to support the principles of Te Tiriti or Waitangi when appropriate in producing funded content. However, a clause specifically requested by NZME acknowledged its absolute editorial independence like this. We acknowledge the importance of your editorial discretion as a media entity and confirm nothing in this agreement will limit or in any way impede or influence the ability of your news reporting functions to report and comment on news stories and current events, including those involving us, as you see fit. So in other words, what Heather Duplessy-Allen had called the strings attached were not actually very strong strings. And coincidentally, that Herald story notes that the author of it, Raphael Franks, is an Auckland-based reporter who joined the Herald just last year as a cadet from Teretor, a journalism training programme established to boost numbers of Māori and other underrepresented groups in journalism. And Teretor is funded by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. ZB's Heather Duplessy-Allen, though, was far from the only one saying the media shouldn't have touched the Public Interest Journalism Fund money. Former National Minister Stephen Joyce, for example, told ZB's Mike Hosking Breakfast the same thing. The media put itself into the position by taking the fund in the first place, which I have to say during my time in the media would never do. And I think it would have been easier if they hadn't. Um, I think, yeah, there are some journalists uh, who are a bit predisposed to the left. There's probably a few that are a bit predisposed to the right, but I don't think the fund will have changed that. But just the appearance of the media being paid money to do its job, I think is problematic. But even in Stephen Joyce's time in a national-led government, the public money paid to media companies for content, the bulk of them privately owned, climbed well above $250 million a year without loud complaints about compromising their ability to bite the political hand that was feeding them. And it was years ago, under a national-led government, that New Zealand On Air changed its remit to fund current affairs TV programmes from the public purse. Initially, those had been excluded to avoid financial dependence on public money, But that changed when the broadcasters just stopped making them and New Zealand On Air recast political programmes like Q&A and The Nation as special interest. Now on Morning Report on Tuesday, the leader of the opposition, Chris Hipkins, claimed that Winston Peters had been part of the Labour-led government that first devised the Public Interest Journalism Fund in 2020, though on Wednesday, Mr Peters himself told NZME's The Country Show he wouldn't have a bar of it when he was in government. NZME, the company I contract myself to, did get a bit of a handout like most leading media companies. And your point is? My point is, was there any bribery at all? Or is this just was this the government of the day, uh, of which you were a member, I think, under Jacinda Ardern, helping out an industry in need, as we did during COVID times? Well, first of all, there is a statement that you make that is not a fact. What happened was that they came to us when I was Deputy Prime Minister, Grant Robinson did, and wanted to bring this into force. And we were alarmed and said to him, you've got to be joking. Everybody will accuse us of bribing the media. And New Zealand First Jenny Marcroft, who's now the Undersecretary for Broadcasting in the new government, told a pre-election debate on the media just last month, New Zealand First had opposed it and even stalled it. We know that the Public Interest Journalism Fund became weaponised $55 million that Minister Jackson put into that. And although I know that he was trying to help support journalism, the industry did not sell it very well and it became weaponised. We stopped it when New Zealand First was in government with Labour because 
the minister at the time wanted it to go out eight weeks before the election, and we said that will be used as a bribe for the media. That's how it will go. So we said, no, you can't have that. Other opponents of the Public Interest Journalism Fund were highlighting that perception problem right from the start, especially with reference to the principles of tetidity being in the mix. Former newspaper editor Carl Dufresne, for example, called it a political project, and writing about the dangers of putting the media on the government's payroll, Graham Adams said any journalist who wanted to revisit dissenting views on the treaty as a partnership would be out of luck. But would they? And would proposals wanting to explore contentious issues like, say, He Puapua, be considered for Public Interest Journalism Fund funding or deemed to be undermining of tetiriti principles? After the Public Interest Journalism Fund's first funding round, I put that question to its boss, Raywin Rash. We absolutely want to encourage conversation in this sphere, but we want to ensure that that conversation is fair and that it is actually coming from an understanding of what tetiriti is actually about so that we're not just getting into um, a polarised debate where where we get into a debate where actually both sides of the story can be told. I don't see why that would be a bad thing. The fund does not editorialise how they cover things, you know, or what they cover or what they say in their coverage. It does require that they understand tetiriti principles. So if you understand tetiriti principles and you want to be critical of those principles, then well and good. But actually many media organisations do not understand tetiriti and therefore the conversations that they are curating uh, run the risk of being biased, racist, and not delivering to the tetiriti partner that is Māori or tangata whenua. But while Raywin Rash said there was no editorial interference in news media receiving funding, it didn't mean that the funder doesn't influence or amend proposals seeking funding. One of the first projects to be funded was called Fault Lines, billed as an exploratory journalism project looking at the science behind the risks of a rupture of the Alpine Fault. And in 2021, I'd assumed that that wouldn't have a treaty or specific Māori element to it, though Raywin Rash told me, not so. Yes, it does. I mean, that's the thing. The tetiriti actually comes into everything. When we um, first looked at that proposal, we noted that there was no Māori content in that proposal at all. So we went back to the um, proposers and, and had a chat and actually, you know, what they've come back with was is fantastic. And they are, you know, the project is stronger because now they have some um, engagement with Naitahu. Naitahu, Naitahu have, absolutely have lots of experience of, of the earthquake situation and, and how it affects their communities. I think we've strengthened that proposal because now it has one element of it that will actually provide to Māori audiences and also provide uh, a viewpoint that um, other audiences may not have seen before. So I think that strengthens it. I don't think it made them... uh, It wasn't a requirement that that was onerous, and in fact I think they would say themselves that actually it's, it's, it's a good thing. So people might end up putting proposals forward that might have no identifiable Māori element uh, or, or consciousness in it. And in that instance, the proposal might be considered, but whoever proposed it might get feedback, well, look, why don't you amend it in this way to include... Here are some perspectives you may not have thought about. Please include these in your final product. And yes, then it can be considered. Is that the way it works? Yeah, and I think, you know, the whole idea around asking organisations to think 
to, you know, to have a totality lens at the very heart of the organisation means that we wouldn't have to have these conversations. I'm not sure why in 2021 I need to explain to media that actually it's important that Māori voices are seen and heard. That was Raywin Rash, former head of the Public Interest Journalism Fund, talking to me on Media Watch in mid-2021 about fault lines preparing for the rupture. Now, that was produced by the Nelson-based Vanishing Point Studios in collaboration with six different news organisations, and it also appeared in print in North and South magazine. And the online multimedia production won this year's Voyager Award for Best Innovation in Digital Storytelling. But while the funder's intervention there did ensure Māori perspectives and people were present in that, the spending could scarcely be considered effective bribery for the government of the day. Now, Even the government that funded the Public Interest Journalism Fund backed away from it before the last election, and now the fund is effectively all over, with the exception of some ongoing training and journalists placed in jobs between 2021 and this year. But on Wednesday, the Prime Minister was pressed for a response to his deputy's bribery claims, and Christopher Luxon seemed not that bothered by them, and he added this. You know, he, he may not have expressed it the way that I would express it, but, you know, the, the view about the public interest fund is, is a view that's held by many New Zealanders to say that was not a good programme or a good idea. Now, the perception that the public interest journalism fund could compromise the media was what mattered, the Prime Minister said, whether it was right or wrong. And that might be true if public opinion on this had been driven by what sceptical politicians and pundits had had to say about the fund and the media. But just two months ago, New Zealand On Air released its annual Public Awareness and Attitude Survey, and the pollsters at Kantar found more than two-thirds of 600 people surveyed mid-year liked New Zealand On Air's public interest journalism. And that was a higher approval rating than for television programmes, online media, community broadcasting or radio programmes, also funded from the public purse by New Zealand On Air. Only local music artists' output was more popular. Now, the approval rating for the public interest journalism had dropped this year, but in its first year of the Public Interest Journalism Fund 2021, it jumped to 76%. But interestingly, these fresh figures haven't appeared in any news story or any political press release about the Public Interest Journalism Fund and fact-free perceptions of media bribery.